One night in a disco on the outskirts of Frisco, I was cruising with my favorite gang. Disco, a dirty word? Absolutely not. Disco was a term given to dance music in the 1970s, when dance parties and nightclubs flourished in cities like New York. The downtown underground club, the Paradise Garage, and the uptown internationally renowned Studio 54 brought together people from all racial backgrounds and sexual orientations. Often the spotlight shone brightest on free and uninhibited dancers comprised of women, gay men, and people of color. When the film and soundtrack Saturday Night Fever was released in 1977, Disco spread like an inferno to the suburbs, and suddenly, what started as an underground movement had quickly blazed a trail throughout the USA and beyond. Record labels were quick to respond, with newly organized dance departments and disco remixes of anyone and anything. Like the fate of any popular musical genre, disco had become commercialized, although there still was a great body of 12-inch remix records that remained firmly rooted in urban dance floors. Suddenly, the club DJ had equal, and sometimes even more, power than the radio DJ in breaking records. My good friend and mentor, the late David Mancuso, was one such person as he helped break the record Sol Makosa by Manu Dubango at his own private party, The Loft. Other underground DJs picked up on it, and eventually this rare record from Cameroon was licensed by Atlantic Records and appeared on the Billboard charts and radio playlists. Chicago radio shock jock Steve Dahl tried his best to bury this cultural and musical movement that united people from all backgrounds and creeds. In July 1979, he organized a disco demolition night in which he encouraged people to bring their disco records to be burned in a bonfire in the middle of Comiskey Park. Overnight, many dance music acts, many of which were led by African Americans, were put out of work and some eventually disbanded. But even though it faded from the commercial mainstream, disco's irrepressible spirit and energy continued to prosper igniting dance floors throughout the world. Atlantic Records played a big part in this story, as the label produced some of the most revered and credible Black American music right from 1947, when it was founded by jazz and blues enthusiasts Herb Abramson and Ahmet Erdogan. They signed some of the most iconic African-American talent, including Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin, and continued their support as soul and R&B morphed into the disco sound that was heating up dance floors around the world. In the 70s, the label's roster boasted dance acts like The Spinners, CJ and Co, Slave, Tasha Thomas, Freak, The Tramps, and The Mighty Chic. And Atlantic subsidiary Atco showcased one of the most significant female groups who continue to show their staying power, Sister Sledge. Real-life sisters Debbie, Joni, Kim, and Kathy started their career as teens performing jazz, soul, gospel, and R&B and secured a hit early on in their career with their 1973 single, Mama Never Told Me. Toward the end of the decade, label president Jerry Greenberg had the brilliant idea of putting them in the studio with Sheik's Bernard Edwards and Nile Rodgers. The result? 
a classic album that has spawned four chart-topping singles, a Grammy nomination, inclusion in the National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress, and a title track with an inspiring message of unification that has managed to transcend cultural boundaries through to this day. I'm Colleen Cosmo-Murphy, founder of Classic Album Sundays and host of Respect, the Women of Atlantic, a special series here on What Did I Say? Forty years after the recording of Sister Sledge's 1979 breakthrough album, I sat down with the youngest founding sister of the group, Kathy Sledge. She reflected upon what it was like to be a teenage recording artist and touring musician who worked with some of the best African-American talent of the era. And we zoomed in on the story behind the iconic album, We Are Family. I'd love to back up to the beginnings of Sister Sledge and performance and music run throughout your bloodline. Yeah, throughout our lives, really. It's our origin. And it's funny because... I don't remember as a little girl ever saying, I want to grow up and be a singer. I think it was destiny. Our grandmother was an opera singer. She was protege to Mary McLeod Bethune. Our father, and if you Google this, it's really interesting. He was the first black entertainer on Broadway in Kiss Me Kate to break the barriers. He danced with a dance team duo called Fred and Sledge. So the music always started way before we were even thought of. And how about your mother? She was also an entertainer. My mom, if she were here with us today, she She'd say, you know, she would always say she has two left feet. She had two left feet, but she always loved music. She always had a business acumen for music and the business of it. So when we decided to become a group, she was our backbone. And she led us to our first, well, all of our success, really, with We Are Family. There was a road that we had to travel, though, to get there. But your mother also managed you. You had your grandmother, who's also coaching you, giving you vocal lessons. Yes. So you were really, like, really empowering as a female to have all these women guiding you. Yeah. My father left when I was four years old, so I had five. Five aunts. And what's so crazy is there are five sisters in my generation and five in the next generation of We Are Family. Our grandmother influenced us. I would actually say she was the first to ever give me personally and my sisters a personal appreciation for music. We would sing for our grandmother. We would harmonize and we would sing in the church. We weren't necessarily on a church choir. We were Mrs. Williams' granddaughters. As an all-female group, you must have been looking to groups like the Supremes who were enormously successful. I mean, they kept the Beatles out of the number one spot in the charts in the UK at one point. That's how successful they were. So who else were inspiring you aside from the Supremes? Well, our mother always had all kinds of music, from classical to all kinds, all genres of music. And so definitely for the whole Motown sound, the Supremes, anything that was hot back then, the Marvelettes, Temptations, not just girl groups, but... When it comes to the girl groups, the Supremes and female singers, Aretha Franklin, of course, Dionne Warwick, not only the artists, but the songs they would sing and the harmonies and the melodies. We didn't realize that we had a gift of harmonizing the sisters. And so from that music, like Dionne Warwick, Say a Little Prayer for You and Aretha Franklin. and. Like every little 
sister group. We would sing in the mirror with our hairbrushes, and they were microphones, and Carol was the lead singer. The thing that's so interesting is how young you all were when you really started as Sister Sledge, officially releasing your first single in 1971 with Time Will Tell. I was 12 years old. My sister Debbie, we had a flip side to Time Will Tell called The Weatherman. We are stair steps in age. So we were always singing, and I guess you could say professionally. This is the first time we ever got paid for singing. That made the difference. That's what <laughs> differentiated singing and professionally singing. So we just grew up on stage. Our mother used to always teach us, too. It's wonderful to have records, but always be an entertainer, no matter what. Your first single, or second single for ACO, Mama Never Told Me, it really has a Jackson 5 element to it. It really sounds a lot like a female version of the Jackson 5. I think that was our first hit single in the UK. And it took us by storm because we, you know, at home domestically, we were on the grind. <laughs> we get on an airplane and go to wherever, be it Tokyo or the UK and, and have this hit record in this territory and the fans and all that comes along with it. And then you come home and get on the bus and go to school. And I learned very early on, one's your work, one's your life, and your life comes first. I mean, it must have been quite challenging. Were you taken seriously as a female African-American act that was so young, adolescent and teenagers? I think we always were. And I think the answer that first comes to mind is because our music was taken, our voices, our harmony, our performance. That's what I think it doesn't matter if you're like six years old or 90. If, if your talent is strong, then that's how you get the respect. And so we were taken very seriously. I remember the earlier days of like working the club circuit, you know, there would always be, depending on where and what club, and I mean like the nightclubs in Philadelphia, there would always be a group of people, especially our aunts and uncles, they would always be there. They were always the constant. Support. Yeah. But there would be people that would come just to hear me sing Midnight Train to Georgia or Joni sing First Time Ever I Saw Your Face. These were the songs that we grew up hearing and learning. And we also learned to perform for the demographic that you're performing for. So there's so many things to be able to be diverse in your music for your audience. One concert I have to ask you about is the Rumble in the Jungle in 1974 in the Republic of Congo or Zaire with Muhammad Ali when he was boxing George Foreman. You were performing alongside the likes of James Brown, Mr. Brown. What was that like? Because you were so James young. Brown, Bill Withers, the Pointer Sisters, and all the talent was on one plane. Tell oh, us about that, what it was like, because you were still a teenager. I was. I was around 13 years old. We were thrilled to be there. You know, my eyes were like, the size of saucers. I was just taking in everything. My sisters and I were. We were protégés at the time to the spinners. And that's how we got a chance to go, who throughout our lifetime were always gentlemen and just, they would teach us. They would take us under their wing and they'd give us advice. And the late Billy Henderson used to give us harmonies and really intricate harmonies and fifths with fifths and sevenths and different parts. And Yeah, so we would learn, and we were just an open book of just taking in all the knowledge we could, especially that tour. The Zaire tour 
was, for me, a personal feeling and my sister's. It was my first time ever traveling to Africa, to my motherland. And to just get off of the plane, I remember the first thing a woman, a young girl, presented us with flowers and said, welcome home. And it's just an experience you can't describe. It was an education as well as just the most awesome time ever to be on the stage with people like James Brown and the Pointer Sisters and Bill Withers. And then it was multicultural. It was also third world artists there like Hugh Masekela. It was just, to this day, it's like yesterday to think about that experience. Well, let's move up to, you started working with another one of my favorite artists, Gwen Guthrie, who I think is was such a great, great artist. So talented. So talented. And you did Love Don't Go Through New Changes on Me with her. She, she wrote that with her boyfriend, Patrick Grant. That song is just an absolute wonderful song. And of course, it was on your first album for ATCO, which is part of Atlantic Circle of Love. What was it like working with Gwen Guthrie? Did you learn a lot from her? I always think of the first word that comes to mind, and I felt the energy that she gave was always bright. And it, of course, exuded through her music. I would just listen to and work with her and hear how she would come up with the most amazing lyrics and melodies. And she was very innovative and very easy to work with. Let's back up to 1977 for your second LP. You went over to Germany to record and with Michael Kunza and, yeah, and, and Sylvester LeVay, who did Silver Convention. Yes. I remember the first time I turned down my transistor fly, radio. Robin, fly, Robin, fly was the first song I heard. <laughs> so it always has a special place in my heart. And you did the album together, together with them. And you wrote a song, Do the Funky Do, which yes. I think is a great song. Thank you. Do you? That yeah. was with Don Freeman. We used to call him like the white soul brother because Don used to wear this huge red afro. He actually went to Zaire with us. What was it like working in Germany? Everything was very planned. Everything was very uh, they knew exactly what they wanted, which most producers do. Some are more flexible to what they want. Sylvester and Mike were flexible, but they knew what they wanted. And I think they had their, and a lot of producers do, they had their formula with Fly, Robin, Fly, strings, and you could hear that come through in the Together project. That's great. Now, you had this success in Europe, but you were over here in the U.S. It was still a bit more challenging. You were all going to university and going to school. Were you actually thinking, hey, if this doesn't work, we have something else to fall back on? Were you getting frustrated that maybe your career here in the U.S. wasn't progressing as quickly as you would like? Yeah, because, you know, there were things we would sacrifice, like proms and track meets. And I was always on the track team and gymnastics, gymnastics all through college. I just, there were meets you couldn't make. There were things you couldn't do. I remember my best friend to this day couldn't go to my senior prom. But I remember I was in Hawaii somewhere. And I remember calling her. This is a really good best friend for you. She was describing what everyone was wearing as if I were there. She was telling me, I guess I went to the prom, you know, through her, vicariously through her. I remember her saying, oh, you know, I'm sorry that you're in Hawaii, but you'll be. She could just understand. It wasn't about where I was. It was the fact of where I wanted to be 
with that place in my life. To be that age and understand that we definitely, we sacrificed a lot all through those years. You know, those were our growing years and we weren't allowed to go away to college. We had to stay in one place because we had rehearsals. And I think my mom used that one. <laughs> <laughs> to keep you nearby. In retrospect, yeah. <laughs> you all went to Temple University, we did. didn't you? We now, what Temple degrees grads. did you all get? I actually majored in recreation and then switched over to therapeutic recreation because I always have and still do a love for children. And I always felt, you know, if I had to fall back on something, I know it would be working closely in that realm. Joan was communication. Joni was always a movie star (laughs) and loved acting. And she was a great actress. Debbie, to this day, is an amazing artist. People don't know that. She went to Tyler School of Art, and the dean of the college said that she was the greatest fine art student to ever walk through their doors. Debbie paints like a—okay, I'm going to really sound like a sister now, but like a Michelangelo. Debbie is an amazing artist. She has talked about doing an exhibit of her work, and she will. She has—two of her children are amazing artists as well. They have her gift. She's always been artsy that way. But these are things people don't know. This is, I guess you could say, our our second passion. And I'll be honest, I'm not quite sure if it's the second. I know music is always our passion, but music was our destiny. Our passions, Kim always had, and actually is going back to law school now. She had to defer years ago, and she's like, no— I've always wanted that. She's also an ordained minister, isn't she? Yes, and she she has a passion for the whole spiritual walk. Yes. So I think she did a a gospel project. But I think music found us. One of the productions I'm working on is is Lost in Music, the We Are Family story. Because you know us as We Are Family. That will always be the portrait of who we are. But Lost in Music played a huge part, too. Of what we've been through. Let's get to that album because now you've had all that frustration of are we going to make it? We've made it in Europe. We have a couple records out. You are hooked up by the Atlantic president of the time, Jerry Greenberg. He hooks you up with Bernard Edwards and Nile Rodgers who are having phenomenal success with Chic, both with their debut album, Chic, and of course, you know, the songs like Dance, 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 Everybody Dance, Say Chic, the next album they came out with, The Freak, of course, yeah, and I Want Your Love, and Risqué, which had good time massive, massive song, and My Forbidden Lover, which I absolutely love. So they're having this amazing run, and they introduce you to Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards. Yeah, the yowza, yowza, yowza people. And you hadn't even really met until you walked into the studio. Can you tell us about that? You know, it takes Niall to tell this story, and Jerry Greenberg, who happens to still be a really good friend of mine. Niall and Bernard had been so successful. They could not have a bomb project. It had to work. On this list were all the artists on the label, or the ones of interest. And we were there, and Jerry started describing us, you got to meet these girls, they're family. They flock together like birds of a feather. Niall and Bernard start taking notes. And to this day, most of that is the portrait of who we are and the lyrics to We Are Family. And Jerry loves to tell that story. And I'm proud of it. I think it is a portrait of who we were known to be. The unconditional love as family. We have our madness, I'm sure you know about. But living under a magnifying glass is also huge, you know. He picked us out. We were on the list. And he was describing us. And they said, we want them. Those are the ones. And they had an image in their mind. They had a formula in their mind. 
being a songwriter, it was a little frustrating because I thought we could write. We weren't allowed to write anything, but I got it. I was like, you know, this goofy kid with braces. I think I just got my braces, and I would always follow Niall around the studio and ask, do you think they're going to play it on the radio? And we laugh about that to this day. But I loved his confidence. He'd laugh at me and go, yeah, babe, they're going to play the song. Let alone, he would say, this is going to be massive. And I couldn't even imagine that because we had had so many records that were massive in other countries, but never here. But I'll never forget when the song was released. When I was waking up for school that day, that's not Weird Family, but He's the Greatest Dancer, is what woke me up the day it was released. Oh I was gosh. shocked. They're like, they're playing our record finally in the United States. That's, that's what woke me up. Oh, what's wow. He's the greatest dancer. incredible. Let's talk about that song first, actually. There's a lyric that you guys objected to that you didn't want to actually sing. It was, please take me home. And my sisters were in a little huddle like, you can't sing that. You can't sing, please take me home. Now I'm naive. I'm like 16. I'm like, well, I'm thinking you meet a guy. That's a guy I want to marry. Yeah, please take me home in that respect. It didn't even, I didn't think of it as anything else. Of course, that's the Studio 54 era of, yeah, pick me up. We weren't these little church girls with collars on that you can't sing that, but we do come off that way. And some of us were. There was a problem with the lyric. I didn't have a problem singing it. That song, what people don't know, Bernard Edwards was so hugely talented, and I miss him. But that song was one I had to record line for line. One night in the disco. One night in the disco. On the outskirts of Risco. Cut. On the outskirts of Risco. Cut. I was cruising, and I was learning it as I was singing it. These guys were so dynamic that while we were working on that song, they were writing another one. While we were in the studio, they had so much demand for their work. I Want Your Love, I Want Your Love was actually our song. And if you listen closely, especially the bridge, when it goes, you're all I need, and the violins come in, that's Sister Sledge. That's our harmonies. But at the last minute, they flipped it. Greatest Answer was their song. Because of that, a lot of the background vocalists are on family and dancer. Luther and Alpha Anderson, that sound stays constant and consistent with all of the chic records. Yeah, you so, definitely yeah. hear that. Like yeah. Norma Jean's, she does, yes. she was on the, on that Norma album Jean, as well. Yeah. Let's talk about the recording of We Are Family because they were writing that in the studio as you girls or ladies walked in. They were doing a lot of that. <laughs> they were writing We Are Family, I remember. We were doing this ad-lib track. It, it was like two in the morning. That ad-lib track was one take. And I'm very proud of that. And I think to this day, that's what the magic is. Of course, they remixed it and moved it around and added, you know, I didn't sing, hey, hey, hey. I didn't sing that like five times. They put it where it worked. But I think to me, with every song throughout time, there's always something, some story behind it that makes it something iconic about it. And I always like to think that the magic in We Are Family was the chemistry we were feeling, even with that track, you know, the ad-lib track. After I got through just singing my heart out, I remember them saying, okay, that's it. And I'm like, what? No, I have to do I more. I ask you about that. Was the whole spontaneity a challenge working with Niall and Bernard? It was mostly a challenge with Debbie, who is, then she was, always the sister that would give us or would like being responsible for our harmonies and giving us our parts. And we would always make up vocal harmonies. And it was very frustrating to her because she felt like, wait, no, we have to have harmonies here. Or why are we not learning these songs until it's time to get them or record them? Bernard, who they would butt heads a lot. They would butt heads, those two. There were times when he'd walk in the studio and she'd walk out. Oh my God. 
you know. So there was tension. And then another thing that when you think back of Sister Sledge, I think the reputation we had working with people was not one of they're difficult to work with, but we did have this rule. And now I get it. It would frustrate producers that each sister would have to try the lead. Each sister. It would kill studio time. Well, that song, we know what legs this song has had. I mean, this sounds like the actual recording had a real charged atmosphere in the recording studio. Yeah, I think everything worked. It was like the perfect storm. <laughs> everything worked with that song. Even the fact that if the ad lib was done really late at night, that was the time to do it. Maybe I would have been to whatever. The vocals and the tightness with the harmonies and the chic sound with the sisters, it all worked. What worked more than anything was the genius of the two men behind it. They knew exactly what they wanted and they had a formula and we trusted them. They have a vision that you may not know, and they obviously did. They obviously did. He says this album is the best album he and Bernard ever wrote. The song was nominated for a Grammy, and obviously it's had such traction. I mean, this song has had legs. It's been a theme for the Gay March on Washington. It was adopted by the baseball team, the Pittsburgh Pirates. You performed it for the Pope. Nuns were dancing to it. It's one of the most famous wedding songs. It's so significant and so loved by so many different people from all walks of life. It's so joyous. Why do you think it's had such traction? I think, again, I think... Some of the best things work when you don't push too hard. And I think it was meant to be. I think it's a song that will obviously be here long after we're gone. It's a great <laughs> legacy. Know? It is. And I'm very proud of that. I think it just got added to the Library of Congress last year. So it's up there with the Martin Luther King speech. I mean, that. so it's history, you know. This is really an amazing thing when you think about it. Who knew? So I think what we are family, it's what a song does to you more than it takes you somewhere. I get more people that will say, I've, I've been at every wedding. <laughs> you get the, oh my gosh, that's our favorite wedding song. And I just heard they just mentioned it on one of the morning shows, best songs for weddings, whatever. But I think it's because it brings you together. It also, it's real. I think back to Jerry Greenberg, I think from the beginning, it was real. No matter what the sisters have done or bump heads or whatever, because yeah, there's madness on if you Google it. But the truth is, unconditionally, we are family, you know. I think that's what people gravitate towards with that song. You know, it may not be with some of the things we've been through, but with that song. My favorite song on the album is Lost in Music. It's so deep. Do you remember what it was like recording that song? It's your sister Joni, as you said on the lead there. I remember she had, uh, Joni always reminded me of a voice. There was a band called Sea Wind. I remember Sea Wind. Larry Williams, I believe. Yeah, I think it was his band. But she would love rock and she would love to do staccato kind of ad lib. And like We Are Family and Greatest Dancer, it was very regimented of what we could sing, you know, and how and what. And they would tell us to sing a certain line over and over sometimes in Lost in Music until they heard exactly what they wanted. She delivered that. And Lost in Music is another song. I always say, you know, our story will always be We Are Family, but there's a huge Lost in Music in our life. But I think you would get lost on the dance floor with Lost in Music. To this day, everything was right with that album, you know, 
all the way to the strings, to the voices, to the group singing it, to the message. Yeah, the message is in the music, as the OJ said. Also, I just wanted to mention the album cover, too. I'm a fan of looking at the album covers and progressions of album covers. And, you know, you have your earlier albums. You look like kids. We just grow up right in front of your face. Absolutely. So sophisticated. So sophisticated. Now, this, you had huge success. And strangely, I mean, Billboard named you as Best New Artist. You you had all been around since 1971 yes. recording. But you were only 20 years old. What was this sudden success like? You were performing on television. You're touring. You have... It's funny because you're right. I recorded We Are Family when I was 16. The success lasted forever. You know, by the time I was 20, it was like it was yesterday that we just recorded it. When people say, well, it was overnight success, I always say, yeah, like 20-something years overnight, you know? <laughs> it always seems like overnight success. And then sometimes when you look back and you reflect on everything, it feels like one long day. We never came up for air. We were, and we would do, because we were entertainers and learned that you never depend on a record. You just shouldn't. What's that saying? No one reads an old newspaper. You always have to be able to be able to perform no matter what. We are blessed that we have a song that two-year-olds know and 90-year-olds know. So it's always new to somebody or familiar to someone. And even in conversations, you don't have to say, when people introduce me, sometimes people go, do you remember? We, you can just say, do you know the song We're Family? And that is what makes the difference. And so I think it's something that around that time, it was a whirlwind. We were just working so hard. But we would do the Rick James tour and then go do the Engelbert Humperdinck tour in Vegas and then work with, you name it. Such a diverse audience such a diverse you had to perform audience. to. It goes to show the song was such a diverse song that you could actually, you know, open before Rick James or the funk tour. I remember Joni pushed to sing a rock song. That was a nightmare on the funk tour. Runaway. But yeah, we would be able to do that. We would be able to work in any kind of market and entertain in that market. Now, even though you were able to entertain in any kind of market, which, you know, your track record shows this, at that time you were lumped in with disco. And I don't think disco oh, yeah. is a bad word personally because I am no. a huge fan. But at the time there was a big backlash. And on July 12th, Chicago shock jock Steve Dahl had the disco demolition. Demolition. And Which was Misty very political Park. to me. I agree. Why it do you was. think it was political? Um, it was very political. It's interesting. I love disco. I don't like being pigeonholed in, in that one era. But at the time... Music was regulated and it was separated. It was segregated. And there's the pop charts, which is a white artist, and there's the R&B charts, which is a black artist. And you have to reach number one R&B before the, the white radio stations even touch your song. And here comes disco with all different colors and genres of music. And I remember You Don't Send Me Flowers was number one. And then it, Le Freak came out and knocked it right off the block. And there were a lot of executives back then that were, like, infuriated. They were, what? This just doesn't happen. And so I think it was political. I think it was the backlash was really political. I think it was, we have to keep this separate. Dance music comes in here, and it doesn't matter what color you are. What color is dance, <laughs> you know? And so I think something had to, they had to label it even more so. Now, don't get me wrong, there are some really bad disco songs. Oh my gosh, there's a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon, uh, yeah. But then there's some really bad country songs and some really bad. I think there's good and bad in all kinds of music. So I think what they did is they kind of emphasized on the really bad stuff. And they said, you know, let's just burn all these records. Let's just think really what it was doing is let's just kind of, let's move this thing out of here. It's in the way. Now it doesn't matter. But then it, it actually was a trendsetter and changed the I music industry. They had to find some way without making you realize what it really was about to, how do you just hate 
a certain kind of music. It's just weird. Absolutely. Do you think that really affected your next album was also written and produced by Niall and Bernard, Love Somebody Today, and that came out in 1980. Do you think that backlash against disco, because you were being somewhat pigeonholed, even though obviously you had a much greater yeah. uh, grasp on no, that wide I, variety of music, do you think I don't. it affected that? You know, Weird Family is a hard act to follow. You don't try to outdo certain things. What Sister Sledge would always run into is Weird Family was such a huge record. We always had a diversified market, especially in other countries. We started getting a, a backlash of we're not black enough. We would get that, especially with all American girls. So, you know, you never know what an act is going through. When you look back to the 70s and 80s and your recording career with Atlantic Records, what is your favorite Sister Sledge song? I think Thinking of You. Always. Always will be. I love Thinking of You. I love to this day. I just did Southport Weekend here in the UK. Sometimes the ad lib, to me, I'm the stickler for it's got to sound like the record. I see some artists and they'll do it a different way. We're going to do a jazz version of Thinking of You. I'm like, no. So I think Thinking of You is a lovely song. It makes you feel good. I love singing it. I love what it says. Hands down, that's my favorite. Kathy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure and an honor to talk to you and to meet you. Oh, and just thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. It was such a joy to speak with Kathy Sledge, whose voice I heard on the radio when I myself was growing up and coming of age. She and her sister's third album for Atco Atlantic was one of the defining moments of disco, which I hope you now understand is not a dirty word. And much like the ethos behind disco, the title track We Are Family continues to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs, and I'm certain it will remain an anthem for generations to come. I'm Colleen Cosmo Murphy, and thank you for listening to Respect, the Woman of Atlantic, a special series on What Did I Say? Subscribe to What Did I Say at your preferred podcast service. Everybody.